0: to the living room, living north. room, north. Living room, living room north. north living room north living room north podcast one of the favorite things about being up at the university of north georgia especially this past week um, and at the crazy big game show event where uh, several of uh, us got to collide or worlds collide and it's always a treat for, for me who's just a little out of college uh, to be reminded of like, what college is really like. And, and so I have the privilege of, of hanging out pretty consistently with college-age adults. And so again, every time I'm on a college campus, which is routinely, um, I just, you know, the, the flashbacks of my collegiate years just come streaming back. I remember what it was like being a freshman, okay? I had a few freshman years. I remember what it was like my first freshman year uh, on the campus of the University of uh, Tennessee. That's where I grew up. That's where I went. Go Vols. Um, thank you. Thank you, Lucas. Yeah. Great great basketball, great baseball, you know, football program, dumpster fire. But I'll, uh, freshman year, you know, I, I've got my backpack on. Um, it's hot in August, as you guys know. I, I sit down in this big lecture hall for botany, which I failed. And, um, and all of a sudden, I see these, these, these ladies looking at me. I'm like, oh, college. This is going to be great. And they just keep, they're talking to each other. They're looking back at me. They're talking to each other, looking back at me. I'm like, I mean, this is awesome. And um, about, I don't don't even know at this point, you know. um, But finally, I, I realized what they were snickering out talking about was, I, from carrying around my backpack, I had these ginormous sweat stains yeah, so it kind of looked like somebody took a water balloon and, you know, threw it under my armpit. So I had that going for me, which was great. And um, so I remember that every time on campus. I remember the classes I didn't like, uh, the classes I did like. Um, so you're probably, again, in the same boat. And one of the things that a highlight for me freshman year, surprisingly, was this uh, psychology course that I was in. Um, I had to take it because it was part of the core requirement. And uh, one of the things that stuck out to me in that college, um, I don't remember a ton um, of of some of the the content from my collegiate years at the University of Tennessee. Uh, Not because I was doing anything crazy, so just easy. Uh, Don't judge. Um, It's just because I I really just wasn't in tune with anything that didn't grab my attention. But this class did. And specifically, there was one piece of subject matter, and uh, maybe for those of you that you've taken psych, uh, maybe you took it in high school, maybe psych 101. You know this Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You might heard of this. You can raise your hand. That's fine. I probably should cover up my armpit. Uh, you can raise your hand. You know, Jacob. I see your armpits. Yeah, they're they're very fluid. Um, So here's the thing, Uh, you remember learning about this. Basically, Maslow is this psychologist who developed a theory of basically certain, uh, we have a certain set of needs that drives our human behavior and motivation. And maybe if you remember from the textbooks for your classes, typically they're lined up or displayed in a pyramid-like fashion. And the idea is, is that your brain is concerned with certain needs first before it moves on to others. And so Maslow he he argued that we have these five basic needs, right? And and there they are. It really starts from top to bottom. And I want to I'll just kind of break down uh, what they mean in a very quick way. Self-actualization, basically, this desire to become the most. We can be, all right, the best version of ourselves. And then self-esteem, okay, you you guys know what this is, respect for oneself, the freedom from somebody else's opinions. That must be nice. Then we have love and belonging where you really have this need for friendship and intimacy and, and a sense of family and connection, and then safety—it's uh, what you would think it would be, okay? Like personal security, health. Like we're kind of we're safe in this environment where we're living in. And the first need, uh, physiological—it's what you would you would think, all right? We need we need these things to survive, all right? We need we need air and water and food and and shelter and most of the time clothing, okay? Like physiological—those are the needs. And this theory suggests that our brain to a certain degree, kind of moves through these different levels. And what I remember being fascinated by is that uh, we are scanning, your brain is scanning constantly in whatever environment you're in, making sure that these needs are met. And so, again, he argues that it starts here and then moves its way up. The The brain's primary job is to keep you and I alive. And we, we've talked about this before, you know, the, that's why physiological and safety needs are first. And we shared a story uh, here at TLR where it's like, hey, the example is, um, if you're hiking along, uh, maybe you've got that backpack on, your pits are flowing, whatevs, in North Georgia, all of a sudden a uh, black bear comes out on the trail. You're like, uh-oh, your first need is like, I wonder if he joined my small group. Like your first need is not, hey, hopefully this bear has a sense of belonging with me. You know, no, no, your first need is safety. How can I get out of here? I got to get away from this bear. Probably going to have to go change my underwear, whatever it might be. But again, your first response is not that love, belonging, self-esteem. It's, again, it's the safety thing. But here's what I find to be extremely interesting is that once a need has been met, The brain doesn't really scan that environment anymore to go back to that certain need. No, it goes on to the needs that have been unmet. And so first, your brain, it it wants you to keep you alive. And then your brain wants you to thrive. And so after your brain knows that you're physically safe, this theory suggests that what your brain would, would dream of, what your brain thinks you need right after safety, the next most important thing that you can experience to thrive in this life is love and belonging and connection. And I'm not a psychologist, um, but I have lived long enough to just experience that this is true. I have felt this in my own life growing up. I, I feel this today. At 23 years of age, 42, Um, born in the 1900s. But I do think this is true. And so go on a journey with me, all right? I want everybody to kind of picture um, your your freshman year in high school, okay? Uh, Not that long ago for you. And you're kind of like, hey, you show up in the scene in your middle school. Uh, Maybe you went to a public school. Maybe you were homeschooled. I don't know. Your freshman year of high school, that's what I want you to think about. And think about all the things that you're going through. Um, this uh, was me, my freshman year of high school. That's right. Uh, great picture. Um, this is probably my favorite part of the picture is that guy's uh, baby mullet. And um, so I don't even remember her uh, his name, but I do remember I do remember this guy going into my freshman year of high school wanting to project that all I really cared about was uh, crushing it in sports, crushing on the ladies, making sure people knew that I was funny. But if you really asked me, hey, deep down, I was curious, would I really, truly belong in high school, at Bearden High School? Because I wanted to know so badly that I did belong. And back then, I didn't have the, really the words to put around it. You know, when we're freshmen in high school, you know, uh, we didn't have those types of words. But I think it didn't really matter how cool I was or how cool I wasn't. Uh, I just, I wanted to belong. And as an adult, um, and as you guys are adulting, uh, I think the desire for, to belonging manifests its, well, uh, just its way differently right, as we get older. But I think if we we're completely honest, um, the desire never really goes away. Um, some, I don't know, at this point, 12, 13 years ago, when, when my wife and I, uh, Ellen, uh, moved here uh, to work for this organization of churches, um, I started out at this, at this church down in Ephraim called North Point. And I remember going to this, uh, this first staff meeting, Same kind of feeling. I had been hired. I had been vetted. I was the number one choice with a sea of candidates. You would think that I would have all of this sense of like, all right, affirmation. I feel good about myself. I do remember, though, being I think it was 28, 29, 30 years old, 31, walking into a room and still going, man, is is this going to be a place where I'm known? Am I going to belong here? Are people going to really like me for who I am? And that happens every now and again. I mean, even when I started in this role like three and a half years ago, same kind of thing. It's like, I still feel like I'm in college, you know? And are are college students gonna enjoy kind of hanging out with me? Is, Is this campus Brownsbridge, are they gonna accept me? Can I really belong to this place? You guys get that. The desire to belong and to be connected relationally, to know you have your people and to be known runs so deep in us. And you guys, you guys know this, you get this. And one of the scariest things for me as, as a freshman in high school, or one of the scariest things for you as a freshman in college, or one of the scariest things when you graduate college is, okay, now what? What do I have? And who's in my circle? And now what am I gonna belong to? And in my opinion, there's nothing worse Than not belonging. There's nothing worse than feeling uh, like just alone. There's nothing worse than feeling invisible. There's nothing worse than this fear of hey, maybe you go for it. I'm going to be known. I'm going to be. I'm going to put all my junk out there. And there's nothing worse than the fear of being fully known and not finding acceptance or belonging. And then if I can be real for a little bit. When we bring in the church and faith into this conversation, um, the, the emotions, I think, at least for me, run a little bit higher. Because the unfortunate reality for maybe some of you in this room is that there has been no other place on this planet more exclusive than the church or faith. There has been no place that has felt less safe For you to bring all of who you are, warts and all, rather than just kind of the parts that maybe look good. The thing that maybe has made you feel on the outside looking in the most in your life might even be a faith community or the church. Because you feel like it's a measuring stick or somebody's put a measuring stick up that you'll just never hit and never measure up to maybe the saddest part of that is is that maybe that there were christians that made you feel that way that you didn't belong because of what you looked like, what you sounded like, what you did on the weekends, what your life was about and so you didn't feel like you belonged. And so here's the thing, we can take this a step further. Some of you have been following Jesus and I differentiate that between being a Christian and following Jesus. I might touch up on that here in a little bit, but some of you have been following Jesus, and you'll tell others about the love of God that he has for you, but somewhere along the way, you've started to feel like maybe his love for you has run out. Maybe his grace for you has run out. Maybe for some of you starting to put on, uh, (laughs) now having to say put on a mask is different, you know, in a pandemic, but You've put on this mask and you start to believe that there's, there's, there's just this, you know, lie that you're living, that there's no room for you to struggle. Do you know how many times I sit across from people and they, they might accidentally cuss or talk about something sexually or whatever, and they, then they realize, oh my gosh, this is a pastor, what have I done, you know? And there is this thing, especially in Western, Southern Christianity, that we feel like we have to be perfect to belong to a community like this. There's no room for struggling. Or maybe you're so ashamed that what people don't see in you, maybe you found some embarrassment around it. And for those who have begun a relationship with Jesus and you have kind of let the shame game kind of dominate you, maybe you find yourself, hey, I'm way too embarrassed now to even, to even pray, to even talk to God. Because again, you're whittled with shame. So when I was thinking about tonight, I, I wanted to kind of tackle some of this this idea of belonging and some of the relationships uh, and some of the friendships that are current in my world where people are kind of going, I don't really know where I fit in. I don't really know if I, I'm accepted by God. I don't know if I'm really accepted by the church. And so what's great for us is that this is a thing that's been, been talking about for thousands of years. This idea was actually most debated, uh, you know, in a different, you know, a number of different places in the New Testament. And that question is, who belongs? Who belongs in the family of God? And so we're going to look at a story tonight um, that uh, I came um, across when I was a freshman in high school. Okay. Um, And I did not grow up in the church Uh, My parents uh, did not grow up in the church. I was a pretty rebellious um, teenager, you know, loved all the wrong things kind of thing. Um, But I, I had never, believe it or not, I grew up in the South. I had never heard the gospel or anything really about Jesus unless my mom was saying JC or GD or stuff like that. That was my only drip of God. And then I got invited to some places like this. And I start hearing about this guy, Jesus. And I'm like, okay, sounds interesting. Um, And then this guy named Norris stands up one night and he talks about this encounter that Jesus has with this man, Zacchaeus. And so here's what I want to say is this idea of who belongs to the family of God, leave it up to Jesus to kind of stir up the pot and push the envelope for so many especially the religious, who made them extremely uncomfortable. So I want to share with you not just a picture of me when I was a freshman in high school, but I want to share with you a story that really changed the trajectory of what I began to think about myself and what I began to learn and discover about the heart of God through Jesus. And we we find it in this, this book of Luke. And we'll just kind of jump right in. Um, if you're new to TLR, we're always going to be preaching or teaching out of Scripture. Uh, we'll put um, it on the screen. Highly encourage you uh, to bring your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we will gladly provide one for you. If you've got that cute little Bible app, you know, on your phone, open up that bad boy as well. So, but I will always put up the Scripture here that's also aligned um, with my notes. So, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Everybody say Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, here's the thing. Some of you know this. Um, Chief tax collector basically is its own category of, of bad. And basically the chief tax collectors, they would collect taxes. Basically, they would charge way more than what people owed and what was required. And they would keep the kind of the extra for themselves. And of course, this drove the people bananas, but they couldn't rise up and do anything because everyone knew that the chief tax collectors, just like Zacchaeus, were backed by the power of Rome. And so here's the thing. They weren't just dishonest, you know, like taking this. They were actually stealing from their very own people, from their very own families. And so you just have to know that tax collectors, they were major sellouts of the worst kind. And because of that, um, you know, yes, Zacchaeus might have had a lot of money, but he didn't really have people in his corner. He didn't even have or really belong to anyone. And he really didn't even belong, as the, the story says, even to his own people, the Jews. And so if you think about that just for a second, we probably all know somebody like Zacchaeus. And maybe even some of you, you're like, hey, yeah, left to my own thoughts. There's probably a little, a little remnant of Zacchaeus sometimes, you know, in me. But, but we know these Zacchaeus types, you know, they, they got the bad reputation. Uh, they're secretly judged by others as they kind of pass by. Maybe, you know, by you in the resident hall. Hey, uh, they're looked down by others. They're, there's These people, there's really no chance of change in their life. Uh, maybe it's hopeless. Maybe they're addicted to stuff. Hey, they just don't belong. They're just on the outside, and honestly, it's probably best if it stays that way. But what enamored me about this story when I heard it for the very first time still gets, just gets me going in the best of ways because I am just enamored and find it so fascinating what happens next. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, I love how descriptive that is, by the way. Old school reference, by the way, you probably don't know who Danny DeVito is, um, but I I picture Danny DeVito. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, Or Kevin Hart. But because, because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree. Again, guys, you should read your Bible. Very descriptive. Okay, love it climb a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus because he had heard about Jesus. Jesus' reputation absolutely preceded him everywhere he went, and Zacchaeus wanted to see him. He had heard about the miracles. He had heard about the teachings. He had heard about this kindness. He had heard about this rabbi that just stood apart, and no one was speaking like him. No one was living like him. So he had to just show up. There was something, if you read the New Testament, there was something so stinking irresistible about Jesus. Even the worst of the worst, the ones that were hated the most, the ones that no one would imagine had any hope of being different, the ones that didn't belong anywhere, even those people wanted to be around Jesus, get a glimpse of Jesus and have an experience with him. And so as we see Zacchaeus is just so eager to get just a glimpse, he climbs this tree to see him because he's, because he's so short. There's no shame in that game. You do you, boo-boo. You know, just get, get up there. Shimmy on up there, Zacchaeus. But his only expectation was just, can I see him? But spending time in this and knowing this story, um, there's a couple of things that I want to share. Zacchaeus spots him, but Jesus sees him. And Jesus sees all of him. Um, he knows who he's, he's, um, he, he's dealing with. Okay, He knows, he, he sees uh, you know, this, this Zacchaeus who's, who's climbed this tree. And he walked by, and again, maybe Zacchaeus is just sitting there being like, all right, I'm going to get a glimpse of this guy. Um, You know, maybe you could give him a little head nod. Uh, Maybe he's curious about, you know, Jesus' footwear. You know, a lot of times I hear people like, I think Jesus wore Birkenstocks. I'm like, that is so, that's so cool, you know, if it's true, Um, but it's not. And uh, maybe he's wearing some new white Crocs because those are back. Uh, So I don't know what, I don't know what he was definitely kind of thinking, um, but what's shocking is what really happened. So again, Zacchaeus is looking for Jesus. Jesus sees him, okay, because the scripture says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, I don't know if anyone really then who was listening was expecting this turn of events. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but then again, the unthinkable happens. Jesus sees Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but Jesus sees Zacchaeus. And Jesus didn't just look at Zacchaeus. He really sees him. And I think you guys understand the difference there. I mean, to see someone is to intentionally engage with them, uh, to initiate relationship with them. To see somebody is to really care about who they are. To see somebody is to truly, like for real, love them as they should be. Jesus could have just looked. He could have just kind of walked by, waved, awkwardly smiled at this weird short guy in the tree and just kept on moving. I've thought about this too, like he could have totally called Zacchaeus out. I mean, he, he knew he was, he called him by name, he knew his reputation, he knew what it was about, he could have totally called him to the mount, he could have totally pointed out his sin. And he would have been justified. And everybody there would have been like, yeah, that's right, yeah, call him out on his tax collecting ways. But here's the crazy thing. Jesus sees them. He intentionally engages with them. And then he wants this, this intimate opportunity to hang out with them, which honestly, it doesn't really get more personal than this. So Jesus sees all of them. He sees who he's dealing with. And um, the thing that I, I think is just amazing is None of that about Zacchaeus, none of his sin, none of his reputation kept Jesus away. None of that kept Jesus from initiating or engaging with him. And you can see how polarizing it is in that text that Zacchaeus was so blown away. This is more that he kind of was expecting to see. It says there, hey, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Gladly literally means rejoicing. So basically Zacchaeus is doing backflips and cartwheels in his mind, in his heart, on the inside, because he can't believe that Jesus wants to spend time with him and even, in fact, come to his house. That can't be any more intimate than that. So Zacchaeus was blown away. And the onlookers, those who are kind of listening and watching it all go down, guys, check this out. They were absolutely repulsed. Absolutely disgusted. Uh, This wasn't normal. A rabbi or a teacher like that just didn't do that. It wasn't customary. Um, It was super duper frowned upon. And listen to this. I I highlighted it in my notes and I I made sure I want to hit this. People like Jesus did not build relationships with people like Zacchaeus. People like Zacchaeus did not belong with people like Jesus, or so everyone thought. And this is what got me, honestly, interested in Jesus. This is what got me and changed the trajectory of my life when I was in high school. I was like, really? Because, ah, I don't know. But this encounter goes on, and it leads to so much more, and we're going to see a few more verses here. The story continues. The story continues. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Which is crazy. It continues. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In the eyes of the first century Jew, okay, everyone knew like, hey, you had to draw a line. You had to draw a line in the sand to really who was in and who was out, who really belonged to God and who didn't. And Jesus wanted to make it abundantly clear that the invitation to belong was for everyone, Period, everyone. Jesus declares that Zacchaeus was now a part of his family. The one that seemed so hopeless, the worst of the worst. And Jesus didn't say this because, you know, G- uh, Zacchaeus gave back all his money. No, he could tell, like, oh, there's there's this inward change, there's this movement, this trajectory that he could see, and he knew, he knew there was evidence that his life had changed. And the one who could not have been more on the outside when this interaction began now finds himself belonging to the family of God. Jesus saw him. Jesus was kind to him. He sought him out and came to earth on a mission to seek and save those who are lost without him. Friends, I want to end our, our time um, with two, basically, points for two different people. And I would love for this to be what we're thinking about as we, as we launch into another semester here in and through the living room. And for some of you, I want you to remember that Jesus sees you. I know that sounds basic, but sometimes we just have to go back to the basics. Jesus sees you. He sees all of you. He isn't afraid of those deep, dark secrets that you have. He isn't afraid or shies away from the deep, deep, dark recesses of your heart that you don't want to expose to anybody, that you don't want to talk about even to your closest friends. Jesus sees all of that and also the power of the gospel, the good news Of what Jesus has done on our behalf changes lives. Jesus sees you right where you're at, and He wants to meet you right where you're at. Because if I know what is true of hanging out with most college age friends of mine, every now and again, if you ask the question, Hey, what do you think? What do you think God thinks about you? The first response, Ah, I probably should be doing more. Ah, He probably doesn't like that I'm doing this. Oh, I'm looking at this too much on the interwebs, ah, oh, you know, and it's just this negative, you know, list of sin, and I want to go, hey, God sees you. He's aware, and He is the one offering you the forgiveness and the grace. So He sees you, and you don't belong um, to the family of God. And you don't belong to this place, what we want you to belong to. You don't belong to this place because we're simply nice. Okay, that's, that's honestly, it's too fragile. You know, I mean, what is the standard of nice anyway? You know, we hear that every now and again, like, hey, you know, your servers and your leaders are so nice when you come in. It's very inviting. And I was like, yeah, that's great. But you belong here um, for something that's way bigger than even ourselves. The standard of belonging lies beyond us because the scope of belonging includes all of us. And so going back to even Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that that need for us to to feel love, to find love, connection, and belonging, I really do believe that you could find that. I mean, really find that in an ongoing intimate relationship with Jesus. Jesus and hopefully at a place like this, where we're trying to create a home away from home, where you can belong to this. And we're not perfect. And we have a crap ton of hypocrites here. We have so many people who would say, hey, yeah, I'm trying to figure out this faith thing, but I'm failing. We're a part of a church who does a lot of good and gets a lot of things right. And we're also a church that misses the mark but I really do believe that this place can be a place where you can belong. So Jesus sees you. And the other thing I wanna to say to those of you who, who maybe you've began a relationship with Jesus and maybe you've been following Jesus for, for quite some time is that to, uh, to, to see as Jesus sees. Like if you're writing something down or you know piddling in your notes, see as Jesus sees. Are you seeing people that desperately need what you have? Are you seeing people? Are you even in relationship with the kind of people that desperately need what you have? Jesus wasn't interested in gathering a crowd. He was interested in growing a family. In this family, we hope it's no different that we do want to be a place, again, that you you can find your people, that you can experience this home away from home, all right? That your, your small groups, which we'll talk about in a second, is a place where you can find true belonging, where you can be yourself and not judged. See as Jesus sees. And if you're a Jesus follower, and this is very challenging for me, is your life compelling to those that are far from God? Is your life compelling? Not perfect, but is it compelling to enough enough that folks go, oh man, if that's what Jesus is about, I'm in. Because so many are out. Because we have a lot of Christians, and I'm speaking to myself here, that have made a decision at some point maybe to believe, hey, I believe in who Jesus is but there's really no desire to follow him. Hey, I'm, I made this decision at some weird and wonky youth camp maybe when I was 11, but I really don't ever spend time with him. I, I don't read the scriptures. I, I don't want his authority you know, over my life. And that, that's not a judgmental thing. I've struggled with that too. My point is, I think for folks who want to be long and want to belong to this type of a community, it's going to require this reality of us seeing, okay, as Jesus sees us, and it's also maybe seeing other people as Jesus sees them.